Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Ottawa Chief Pontiac is remembered as leading a coalition of tribes in a rebellion against the British Empire following the French and Indian War. They rose up against oppression by British troops and expanding colonialism. The rebellion lasted for two years and forced the British to change their stance on Native people. We'll take a historical look into Chief Pontiac and the rebellion that shaped history 260 years ago. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. In the aftermath of the fires that ravaged Maui, the struggle to protect the Native Hawaiians' land continues. Matt Lazo reports from Washington. Here in the nation's capital, when people hear Maui, they think resorts, not Native Hawaiians. So they are among the very important voices. That's Hawaii Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono. Even before the tragic inferno, Many Native Hawaiians were vocal critics of where their water was being diverted to. Tourism, sugar plantations, and there was also a housing state of emergency put in place by Hawaii Democratic Governor Josh Green, which he declared ahead of the fire, one that upended traditional reviews focused on the cultural and environmental impacts of development. Issues Senator Hirono knows all too well. I think that is a big challenge, but nonetheless, yeah. the sentiment is definitely be there. They don't want developers swooping in and uh, getting, getting hold of the property and doing whatever it is they're going to do. There are also issues such as water. It's yep. a limiting factor in terms of developing that area. As the rebuilding of lives, homes, and land continues, Hawaii Democratic Senator Brian Schatz cautions patience. I think we have to take a deep breath and allow FEMA and the EPA to clean up the site. And then we need to let, in, let individual landowners have access to their own property so they can get closure and collect whatever personal effects might still be there. Yeah. And then individual property owners are going to make individual decisions. Schatz says public officials have no say in some of these deeply personal matters. For some, they want to rebuild, and for others, they want to rebuild their lives somewhere else. And I, I'm not here to judge any individual family for what they may want to do. As for Senator Hirono, she promises there's not going to be a free-for-all land grab in Lahaina. Well, I do not have the answers, but what I do know is that there should, should, there should not be a rush to uh, figuring out what Lahaina is going to look like. For National Native News, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. A celebration of Indigenous music and culture took place in Juneau, Alaska recently, packed with three days of music and 25 different acts. As KMBA's Rhonda McBride reports, organizers say it's the only global Indigenous music festival in the United States. It all takes place in Juneau, in Thlingit Ani, the Thlingit homeland. This is the second Ock Rock Music Festival, now held every two years. This year, it features 35 cultures from around the world. Some of the headliners are well-known. Native American groups like Snotty Nose Res Kids and Samantha Crane, a Choctaw indie pop singer. Oh, dear, Louis, 
Stephen Kachung Blanchett, the creative director for the festival, says Auk Rock has performances on multiple stages as well as jam sessions. We're not going to have seats like the traditional seats. We're going to have places where people can just chill out. You might be able to, you know, hang out on a piece of like sea otter fur and just kind of lay out and relax or maybe even smudge with some sage. Come on I'm imagining some organic, just amazing magic being made. Auk Rock is co-sponsored by Clinkett and Haida Tribes and the Juno Arts and Humanities Council. With help from KTOO's Boston Christopher and Juno, I'm Rhonda McBride. I'm Joel Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. After the French and Indian War in the 1760s, the British expanded colonial settlement at the expense of the tribes living there. Fed up with the continued oppression of Ottawa Chief Pontiac, United Tribes against the British of the summer of, 19, of 1763. A violent period ensued over the next two years and spread from the Great Lakes to as far east as West Virginia. Chief Pontiac's efforts to unify tribes and resistance to British forces had a lasting effect on British policy toward Native people. Today we'll explore the legacy of Chief Pontiac and get insights into the rebellion 260 years ago. And we encourage you to share your questions and comments. What do you know about Pontiac's rebellion? Does your tribe or community have a connection to the war? Let us know by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line in Petoskey, Michigan is Ben Hinman. He is the Education Program Administrator with the Little Traverse Bay Bands of Ottawa Indians. He is an elder and the great-great-great-great-grandson of Chief Pontiac himself. He is of the Bear Clan. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here this afternoon to share... Uh, family knowledge about uh, my great-great-great-grandfather and the tremendous impact it had on our lives. And, you know, to share his vision um, and his background is, is I think, is important because, mm -hmm. you know, first and foremost, I think he was, you know, he was an Anishinaabe and uh, cared deeply about what he was seeing happen 
with the incursion of Europeans into the North American continent. So I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Can't wait to talk more with you, Ben. Also on our show today and speaking with us from Tonawanda Indian Reservation in New York is Leon Sam Briggs. He is a historical reproduction specialist and a traditional teacher. He is Tonawanda of the Seneca Hawk Clan. And Sam, a warm welcome to you too. And uh, as I understand it, you also are related to some key Seneca leaders who were allies of Chief Pontiac, correct? Yes, it's not in Scano. And uh, yeah, Guy Asuda, um was uh, one of my relatives, uh, and he was back way back then. And um, his uh, his nephews um, with uh, Joseph Brandt on one side fighting for the Mohawks, and then um, with one of my relatives, uh, Chief Cornplanter, and they were uh, they were some of the most uh, uh, unique orders. Um, because they had some, um, they had English uh, education as along with tribal education. So they brought into a dis- different aspect. Um, and so that's one of the things with, uh, you know, the legacy of Pontiac and, you know, what he was able to do and the amount of people that he brought together under, basically under one feather. Mm-hmm. Certainly was a very, very interesting time in history, both uh, in the early days of the United States of America, as well of, as of course, Native American history, too. And with that, I'd like to begin with you, Ben, and tell us more about uh, your famous relative, Chief Pontiac. Why is he such an important historical figure? Well, I, I think, first off, I, I wanted to, to uh, share with you that Pontiac is more the anglicized uh, pronunciation of his name. Uh, Obwandiac is probably uh, uh, more closely to the way uh, his his name was stated and, and remembered. And it, it meant uh, he who travels or he who is traveling. And uh, as many historians have reported, Pontiac was uh, a man who did a lot of traveling. He, um, he His interest was in... Uh, exploring other tribal nations and, and building relationships with them, understanding that uh, tribes standing together were much stronger than independently, and uh, was one of his regular practices. In, in fact, to when he was approaching new tribal nations and their leaders, to hand them a stick and tell them to break it, and they would do that, right? And then he would hand them a bundle of sticks and to tell them to break it. And, of course, they could not. And the, the idea that he was trying to get across was that, you know, individually, even though we're strong, uh, we're facing uh, a new enemy that we don't know much about. And it, it's time for us to come together and address these needs uh, as tribal nations unified. And so out of that comes the Three Fires Confederation of the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Botawatomi, who are all residing in Michigan and the Great Lakes area. And, um, you know, uh, one of the, the things I think is it's uh, important to mention early on is that Pontiac was first and foremost a spiritual man. He was a revered member, uh, seventh degree Medewin, uh in the Medewin Lodge. And um, he was also uh, following a prophet by the name of Neolin. 
And Neolin had some powerful prophecies and dreams about uh, the future of Anishinaabe people and how uh, the incursion of Europeans will lead to their decimation and the loss of their way of life. And that became Pontiac's, uh, I guess his mindset was that, you know, we have a, we have a teaching that says, you know, we, we pray for those who are seven generations before us and the next seven generations beyond us. Mm-hmm. And in terms of Pontiac, that would have been, I'm six generations from Pontiac. My children are seven. So whenever we uh, would would be discussing um, what should happen, it was always with those teachings that came from the seven generations before us and how they would impact whatever our decisions were, the next seven generations of our families. And so that's who Pontiac was. He was, he was um, first and foremost, a spiritual man who took all of his matters to the Creator and to the Lodge to uh, confer and to seek guidance. Ben, help us out with the timeline here. About what era did did Pontiac first come into prominence? Then, early seventeen hundreds, mid seventeen hundreds. I would I would say it was probably the mid seventeen hundreds. Mid seventeen hundreds, he became very active uh, among the tribes in uh, Great Lakes. Um, he was watching again. He was responding uh, to uh, his own observations of what was happening and uh, the the negotiation of agree- trade agreements with the French and the British um, in the Great Lakes for the fur trade, for example. Um, he was heavily involved in that, and he was watching how that relationship was playing out. And there was this thing called, um, that historians have called the middle ground. And the middle ground to Pontiac was that if the Europeans were going to uh, pursue fur trade with the tribes, then they should pay for that relationship. And there should be a reciprocal agreements between them, uh, acknowledging that indigenous peoples had rights, had rights over the territory and the land that they lived on. And that they should be able to determine uh, how those those agreements were constructed, and and that they were uh, that there was definitely a benefit to the Anishinaabe people who were involved in all of those negotiations. So really, um, you know, European uh, countries that were uh, coming into North America um, for the first time were experiencing uh, indigenous peoples who who were thinking beyond what they thought they were capable of. We knew the importance of those, those relationships. We'd had them with other nations, tribal nations, for centuries. You know, we negotiated all types of agreements for hunting and trade and fishing rights, trade routes, all of those things. Uh, Pontiac, for example, uh, was known to carry a wampum belt, and that wampum belt uh, enabled him to travel extensively throughout um, all of the Great Lakes and, and, and east to the East Coast. And, you know, he traded with uh, many different tribes um, mm-hmm. based on that, that knowledge and that relationship building. Now, Ben, um, Pontiac's Rebellion uh, occurred after the French and Indian War, and we're going to get to that. But 
what was uh, what was Pontiac's role as well as the Ottawa people during the actual war itself, the, the French and Indian War that predated the American Revolution? I guess I'm not I'm not certain what you're asking me. Um, his role uh, initially was um, bringing the tribes together, right? I mean, he had he had traveled extensively, and he was demonstrating to them that there was uh, cause for concern that the relationships, the the agreements that were made with the British and the French were eroding. And um, he considered the French a stronger ally, of course, than the British. Um, they were asking, they were paying more and asking less of the Anishinaabe who were uh, negotiating these agreements. And they were honoring those agreements in a way that um, meant they acknowledged the sovereignty of Indian nations. And whereas the British, those, those agreements began to erode, and I think that's what was leading, leading up to the war, is that he was trying to strengthen those agreements and trying to make, make them uh, aware that he was willing to, he would be willing to go to war if that were necessary to enforce those agreements and to protect them and to protect his people and lands. All and right. So I think his role was organizer. Okay, thank you, Ben. We're going to go ahead and take our first break here in just a moment. But I encourage listeners to call in today. If you're familiar with this period of history, circa French and Indian War, and uh, some of these key figures such as Chief Pontiac, sure would like your insights today. Sure do appreciate you calling in, and we welcome you to the conversation. 1-800-996-2848. Time is running out to avoid a federal government shutdown. A coalition of Native organizations say shutting off funding for at-risk tribal members could put lives at risk. Meanwhile, COVID-19 is surging, and the rollout for new vaccines is hitting some speed bumps. We'll get updates on two significant developments on the next Native America Calling. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about Pontiac's rebellion today. Does your tribe have a connection to Chief Pontiac? What questions or comments do you have about the rebellion that occurred 260 years ago? Join this conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a post on our social media pages like Facebook and Instagram. On the line now is Ben Hinman. He is the great, 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 great grandson of Chief Pontiac. And Ben, listening to you share uh, so much background on on Chief Pontiac and some of the European and tribal relationships during this time before and during the French and Indian War. And 
Uh, one thing that I've learned over the years is that during that period, that early period of westward expansion, the tribes were very much on an even playing field with the French and the English in many ways. They were very compatible militarily, economically. They were very much equal foes. And uh, it sounds like Chief Pontiac was really able to leverage that power and that influence during those early days. Is that right, Ben? That's correct. You know, and I think, you know, one of the one of the um, characteristics that made Pontiac who he was, was he was a student of um, human nature. And he was very much interested uh, in the English and French um, war leaders, right, their generals and their colonels. And so he spent a lot of time uh, getting to know these men and studying them and really talking to them about their way of life and uh, trying to educate them about, you know, our way of life and how they were similar but different, right? And one of the things that Pontiac was trying to draw out of these men, of course, is um, if they were to become his foe at some point, um, he needed to know what they were thinking. He needed to know how they responded in battle. So he would sometimes <clears throat> spend days um, at the British forts, for example, visiting with these uh, men who he might say face in battle and getting to know them and strategies were about. And, you know, so in that way, um, he knew them not only as, as friends, which they were at that point, but also as potential enemies and what he should expect were he to encounter them in battle. How would they respond? He would go to battlefields where they were, uh, where they were at war and observe how they fought, for example, uh, before these relationships even started up. Um, and he thought it was strange. Their their way of making war was strange, um, that they would stand in these open fields and engage each other when that made no sense to him. Mm -hmm. uh, he thought that was a waste of resources and, and, and lives for them, for that matter. So he was also a, a, a very astute uh, about making observations about who, the, who his potential enemies would be. Okay. Yeah, it's always fascinated me how, how the Europeans, uh, they, how they waged war. It was so, so fundamentally different, fundamentally different than how Native people during that era would fight. And uh, Ben, I, I want to ask you uh, how Pontiac ultimately came to lead the rebellion. But before we do that, let's take our first call of the day. We have Chanupa, who is listening in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. Ben, I'm going to share something with you real quick. I'm here on the Keeley Radio and always listening to Native American calling because we Lakotas always have input to things like this through oral history. I come from the Nukhevanitia Teoshpa, which is, means no ears. My grandpa, no ears, is buried right down the hill here in Wounded Knee at the 1890 massacre site. So what I wanted to share with you, Ben, was that don't forget to Tecumse and Osceola. They, too, came further out here in the Midwest trying to gather the Lakotas because of what kind of conditions they were facing out there. The same with Pontiac. Pontiac did this in an opening forum. And I know you're, as a family, uh, um, hereditary um, family member to uh, Chief Pontiac, this is naturally going on today. 
in the year 2023 where our people have to make a stand because of our land. And a lot of these ranchers are doing that. So this is one thing that Pontiac did to drive most of the settlers out because, he, like you said, I agree with that. He learned that tactic by observing and watching what these people were doing. And thank you, Sean, for giving me this. And Rupa la tanka e chiche, Ben, takule iwagla kokihe, chantemit hokiyomakpi. Don't forget, even Red Cloud at the Bozeman Trail, he shut that down. And that's why we're still facing these hereditary conditions. Back to you all, and thank you. All right, Chanupa, great call coming in from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And, uh, Ben, Chanupa gives you a shout-out, and he mentions uh, Tecumseh and Osceola, uh, which begs the question, how far west did Pontiac travel? Did he make it as far as the Great Plains and interact with some of those peoples in that region during that era? Well, we we believe he did. You know, like I said, he was well-traveled, and, you know, he spent uh, a great amount of time trying to build those alliances with other tribes, just like the, he mentioned, Tecumseh and Osceola both uh, saw the value of building those relationships, and he's exactly right. Those those circumstances, although they're different uh, during these times, there certainly is a need for us as tribal nations to um, to continue to have strong bonds. You know, one of the things that uh, as as a Someone who grew up uh, working in Indian country and uh, serving um, in the capacity of an advisor sometimes on legislative issues, even though we may be 500 um, or more miles, 1,500 miles away from the Lakota people, the same policies, the same governmental policies that affected us here affected them in the Dakotas. Mm-hmm. And so he's exactly right. We inherit uh, a lot of the same um, circumstances, and some of our grievances are the same because those policies that faced the Anishinaabe in Michigan also faced uh, the tribes on the West Coast at some point. By 1855, you know, a lot of this was uh, a lot of the treaties were coming to conclusion. The United States was. Uh, changing their policy with the treaty making. Um, but a lot of those treaties wouldn't have happened um, without the intervention of uh, the chiefs out of the, like Pontiac and Tecumseh and Osceola, who were saying to the federal government, we are here, we are nations, just like you. We have the ability to negotiate rela- uh, relations, whether they're trade or they're over land over their over resources, we have control of those things, and we um, we need you to understand that you need to acknowledge us in that way. And so that Pontiac was about that, and you know, and I want to say this because I, I think it's it needs to be said. Pontiac also thought heavily and deeply about what he was already seeing happen with his people. The trade from the British and the French brought many new items into our lives, right? Mm-hmm. We had clothing, we're using cloth, we're using pots, we're using guns. Pontiac saw those things as taking away from uh, what our people call, the Anishinaabe call, Mino Bamadzawan, that beautiful and good way of life that we already had in exchange for these items that were moving us away from who we were as, a, as Anishinaabe people. 
And so he saw all of that erosion going on already, and he envisioned where it would lead. And unfortunately, it did lead there. We did lose uh, many of those traditional practices. We lost our language. We lost, and they came through all of those federal policies. The same right. boarding schools that happened on the East Coast happened on the West Coast. And so um, as tribal nations, we're all impacted by those same policies. All right. Thank you, Ben. Good points that you're making here today. And uh, let's bring Sam into the conversation now, historical reproduction specialist and a traditional teacher. He is from the Tonawanda Seneca. And Sam, please help set the stage for us. The events that we're discussing today occurred right after the French and Indian War. What were the impacts of that war on these regional tribes? Um, I guess one of the biggest ones was, again, um, you know, talking about the clothing, talking about, you know, the guns and a lot of the things that were brought in. Um, you know, when you look at uh, some of those those visionaries, um, uh, Miolin, uh, and then stuff that came, you know, through these, um, you know, traditional uh, speakers, one of the things that they looked at was, yes, this is making life easier, but one of the problems that they had was this was, was a no, one way that the government, the British, the French, you know, that they were con be able to control them. Well, you know, by holding gunpowder, by holding lead, you know, they that was one way that they could control them. Um, so when you listen um, like to some of Neolan's um, teachings about staying back, uh, the decolonization by walking, um, walking our ways, uh, those ways, you know, had brought us, um, you know, to a point where we were surviving 500 years easily before European contact. And, you know, we never had a lot of those issues. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we never, when the, the, the trapping, um, you know, traditionally they would go out, you know, they could spear a beaver, you know, they could use a bow and arrow. Um, you know, there were simple ways, but they used what they needed. You know, they did, there wasn't this, um, this kind of overplay of, um, you know, the financial part of it. Um, the French were a lot more, um, you know, friendly, I guess you would say, to uh, the indigenous countries and the All indigenous right. nations. And so with, with that, um, there was intermarrying, you know, with the French, um, and the French didn't seek a lot of, um, you know, the, 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 the destitution of, um, you know, or just killing off of the animals as they were going. So okay. when they were working, go ahead. Yeah, so Sam, okay, so um, so obviously there was a better relationship with the French than the British. The French uh, were better trading partners, and they were more cognizant of tribal sovereignty. So at what point did it reach this uh, boiling point where Pontiac felt the need to rebel? How did that come about? Um. The biggest thing was the building of the forts. Um, you know, they, they laid, uh, you know, they talked about, you know, the promissory lines and then the division of properties and stuff. And traditionally, um, most indigenous, um, you know, nations and stuff didn't look at it that way as owning, owning property. 
So uh, when we would travel, you know, we would have areas where we would have hunting grounds, places to gather, um, you know, places to fish. And that was one of Pontiac's biggest things was the invasion of um, of the, you know, properties and territories that they traditionally used to hunt and fish. Now their trees were being cut down. Uh, anytime they planted crops, uh, a lot of their crops and stuff were being burned. Um, you know, and again, that was another control issue. And mm-hmm. with Pontiac, one of the things that he did, um, and like a lot of other good leaders, was, you know, was to physically and spiritually unite other nations together and bring them in. And he, they often spoke as brethren and mm-hmm. talking as, as our friends, as being brethren from other okay. nations. Well, Sam, give us some details on the rebellion itself. It extended for about two years uh, as far west as the Great Lakes, as far east as West Virginia. How bad did it get? Well, um, it got bad, you know, when you you look at uh, like right up until May 7th, um, you know, with uh, when they went into Fort Detroit. Um, but even after that, you see a lot of the things that happen within the nations um and the you know the fall of um you know these 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 treaty lines um and then with those treaty lines uh there was a lot of things that happened you know especially when they started they said they weren't going to build any forts you know past that and then next thing you know they're they're starting to build forts out there and that was one of the things in one of the statements um you know that uh, Pawnee had, had made when in some of these meetings to the other, um, you know, tribal leaders and and uh, um, even with his people, you know, saying mm-hmm. that you know that they needed to stop this this further um, penetration of these people coming into um, into taking other lands, taking the trees, killing the animals, that their the lack of respect. Um, and that they no longer, uh, you know, accepted. And so through these different battles um, and burning of the forts and stuff, um, you know, that, that was one way that they okay. were being successful. And, and through Sam, all the what, way down to... What were some of these key battles that occurred? Um, well, you look at, um, at some of the things that they first happened. Um, you know, at some of these, what they would call the, in uh, April 27th of, of um, 1763 is, you know, they they talk about, uh, you know, burning of these uh, of these forts in the Fort Detroit. And then uh, some of the other forts and said that to, uh, you know, he sent out messages, you know, to all the nations and to burn the forts that were closest to them. Um, then, you know, with uh, with Detroit, um, with uh, some of the other uh, places, um, and uh, I'm trying to think, uh, what is it, Fort Michigan, <clears throat> and then, you know, it was built at the meeting place. And so the Council, the council of, the three, of the Three Fires, 
So all the way to Fort Pitt, Fort Bushy Run. Um, one of the things that was with uh, some of the issues that happened, Bushy Run was considered one of the first times that the British had used biological warfare against indigenous people by supplying, um, you know, blankets with smallpox, you know, to the uh, to the people that were there. And so that was one of the when they lost that, um, you know, to the British, uh, that was one of the very one of the kind of one of the saddest points. Um, but it was the whole timeline of following every time that they would make an agreement with with Pontiac or the other indigenous leaders that this um, it wasn't long after that that they broke those treaties or they you know they went into the All areas right. where they said they weren't going going to go all right sam we're going to take another short break uh, i encourage listeners to give us a call share your knowledge share your insights with regard to pontiac's rebellion which occurred right after the french and indian war give us a call 1-800-99-NATIVE support by aarp If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your social security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing this conversation about Pontiac's Rebellion. If you have a comment or a question, you can join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Our guests today are Ben Hinman and Leon Sam Briggs. And Ben, I want to go back to you and, and any more insights or any more details you'd like to share about Pontiac's rebellion. What caused the rebellion specifically? What were some significant battles that were waged? Any other details? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when I think about um, uh, my grandfather and uh, his decision to uh, unite the tribes and to go to war ultimately, um, you know, I think um, the 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 point that I always try to make when I'm talking about my grandfather is that uh, every thought and action he took uh, was with uh, full consideration of um, the impact it would have on his people. And, you know, the, the, not only the generation that he was living in, but the future generations and all of his actions including the war itself, uh, were done only after he had prayed on them and um, had consulted with uh, his elders and his teachers. And I think what, you know, what what I've taken away from that uh, on a personal level is that, you know, uh, everything he did was was necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, He obviously had... uh, uh, you know, his concerns uh, have come to fruition. Uh, if you take a look at uh, uh, all of us today, 
the, the, the very thing that Pontiac was trying to protect was our way of life. Mino Bamadzuin, that beautiful way of life, that way of living with the land instead of against it. Um, the belief that uh, we didn't own the land, we lived with it. Um, that that relationship was part of the balance of the natural world. I mean, those were his foundational beliefs. And so when he went to war, he was fighting not only for his his life, but the way of life that he had come to love and to know and to understand. And his relationship with Creator, his relationship with his people, the fact that he went to war um, showed his full commitment to protecting all of that. And all I right. think it's, you know, for, for me and for his family, I think that that speaks uh, volumes about who he was as a human being, that he uh, was willing to go to whatever extent he needed to to protect those things he believed in. Right. And I think that each of those battles uh, were won um, in a way that he helped to facilitate, but certainly there were other leaders who he cultivated relationships with who were just as passionate about their uh, protecting their lands and their people. All right. And Let's so he was about... just. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, man. Let's talk about some of those other leaders and Sam, uh, tell us about your people. How were the Seneca involved in the fighting during this time? Uh, the Seneca, um, as a Haudenosaunee, as the, the nations were called together, um, there was a lot of binding between the nations because they were basically, uh, um, where they'd upheld their lands um, in, but a lot of those nations, um, especially with the Seneca, um, you know, Gaia Suda, uh, uh corn planter, Joseph Brandt at the Mohawk, uh, you know, a lot of these people, again, is the same as with uh, Pontiac, you know, they didn't look at uh, war as being basically war. They looked at war as making, you needed war to make peace. And so uh, when they uh, looked at some of their their traditional teachings and the Guy William and some of the other um, things like with the good word, um, you know, and, and listening to those, um, those visionaries, um, you know, everybody, you know, as they were coming, uh, and they were learning, that's one of the things that they looked at is, you know, again, we did not look at war um, as, you know, what we we needed to be there but needed to exist because using war, to, you know, for peace in that uh, line was actually being able to um, use the war and to support our people that way we shall remain. Uh, right. And it's the same as every other nation. Um, U.S. has been having to fight those wars, and still today they're still fighting those wars. Um, you know, against the the government. Um, you know, to keep our indigenous tribes, to keep our indigenous nations. Um, you know, still whole. Okay. Now, Sam, earlier we heard Ben talk about how Pontiac. Uh, really was surprised at how the Europeans waged war in those days, the marching and the protocol and 
the native people during that period did not fight like that. They never fought like that, right? They were always more of a guerrilla type tactic. How did that play out? How did those opposing strategies, warfare strategies actually play out on the battlefield during this rebellion? Um, one of the things that you see in one of the first times um, that they really noticed a big loss for the British and stuff was Bloody Run, um, you know, in, in, in July. And with that, they found that they were going to go in and take Pontiac's um, people and stuff. And what they found out was once they got in there fighting on their terms, that the, the natives were quite um, – they were, I guess you would say, they were a lot more efficient at the guerrilla warfare than they weren't going to stand in line and let you shoot at them and then they shoot back. Um, all the way up through, uh, even like with the Devil's Hole, uh, they call the Devil's Hole Massacre. Um, you know, 300 Senecas, Ojibwas, and Ottawas, you know, they took on the British and you basically, they, they you know, they, they killed, I think it was 72, um, and then wounded almost half of the, the amount of uh, soldiers and stuff that were there. And so that was another one that, well, you want to put yourself in, in that place, you know, we'll wait till you get into the weakest spot, and then that's when they attack. So a lot of times when you're looking, um, you know, at those, those sequence of events, um, the native uh, or indigenous people, they they seem to do a lot more thinking before they got themselves into a position, you know, that they weren't going to be able to get out of. Sam, when did the fighting finally stop and what was the aftermath? Um, well, one of the things that came um, after, the, like the Devil's Hole in some of those that um, – one of the, the treaty at um, at Niagara. Um, that was one of the things that set more of the peace. And then another treaty and stuff in Ohio, in Ohio lands. Um, and one of the things that they, they found out was that this war was going on, but it was becoming it had become a stalemate because the military thought they were just going to go in and just take out all of these um, these indigenous people and be able to, uh, um, you know, take over everything. And they found out that wasn't the case, that uh, their hit-and-run tactics or their guerrilla warfare tactics were a lot more effective than, um, you know, than the militaries. Right. So then when, when you look at all the way up to 1763, um, you know, at uh, at Pontiac's death, that he was still um, he never lost power. You know, and the in the power being that the strength of all of the people. You know, and when they talk about that strength again, as Ben said, that holding that one stick or one arrow, you know, you can break that. And then, but you bundle five or six together, and you hold that, and they there's strength in numbers. Certainly. So, certainly. okay. So when so they I, got to those, go ahead. all right. I, I'm sorry, Sam. We're, you know, we're running a little bit low on time, and I definitely want to to go back to to Ben and, and Ben. 
two questions. Uh, first, what we want to talk about is how the relationship between the tribes and the British changed after the rebellion. And then also, um, when and how did Chief Pontiac ultimately die? So uh, by 1865, um, you know, the, the war was over. Um, the British realized that uh, they were not going to be completely successful in containing and controlling uh, all of these Indian nations who had united together and that the final outcome would, would, would need to be a peace treaty just to end the rebellion itself. And <clears throat> they actually tried to lure uh Pontiac to come to New York for that treaty signing, but it never happened, of course. Uh, it wasn't long after. I mean, no one is really certain about the date of Pontiac's death. Um, but they know that um, sometime after 18, between 1866 and 1880, Pontiac was actually assassinated um, by uh, a family who uh, Pontiac had at one at one point um, had had taken another uh, had been challenged by another um, the son of a chief and that chief that son had insulted Pontiac um, during his discussions with uh, the tribe to try and bring them in to support what Pontiac was thinking and the insults got to a point where Pontiac just you know didn't know what else to do, and his his integrity was in question. He ended up killing that that other warrior. Uh, it's believed that it was that family that actually um, followed Pontiac and eventually assassinated him. Retaliation. Uh, the exact in retaliation for the death okay. of his son. And so right. uh, there are others that believe that they were hired by the British to assassinate Pontiac because of his involvement in the rebellion. And, you know, they call it a rebellion, of course, and that's not what it was. It was uh, our people defending um, with life and blood um, what they believed in and defending uh, the land that they lived on and the resources that were there. So, sure. you know, it's always it's always spun in a different way, but uh, you know, my grandfather. We we follow his traditions. We uh, we believe in his way of 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 life. And even though we we don't, I've often said this when I'm giving presentations. If Pontiac were to walk into the room right now and to look at who we are as Anishinaabe and tribal nations, I believe he would cry, because all of the things that he stood for, all of that his defense of Mino Bamadzu and that beautiful way of life, eventually it's eroded away from us, you know, and we're placed into these, these, uh, many of our children are taken from their families and placed in boarding schools. I, in fact, myself am a survivor of Holy Childhood School of Jesus Indian Boarding School in Harbor Springs, Michigan, which is uh, our tribal government uh, complex is probably only a couple miles from that, the site of that former school. I want to squeeze one more caller in. Uh, we've got one person they've been waiting on hold for quite a while. Tim up in Bethel, Alaska, who is listening on station KYUK. Good morning, Tim. Thanks for calling in. 
Hi, thank you for uh, taking my call. Um, I really, really, super duper, really appreciate uh, <clears throat> this call in or this this show because there is so much of this hist- so much of our Native American history that's not included in the history books, and I've learned so much today about uh, Pontiac and Seneca, and you know, all I knew about Pontiac was uh, it was a <clears throat> um, model of a car, and and Seneca. Uh, as a model of an airplane and you know i didn't know about all these um <clears throat> chief pontiac and and others and i just like to um commend the people on the show uh and the host sean keep it up and um listen to you every time you get the opportunity thank you you bet tim really appreciate that call and uh ben let's go ahead and go back to you for the last word here we've got a caller tim who really is enjoying this show appreciates you and sam sharing your knowledge and uh, anything else you want to add or share before we have to wrap up the show, Ben? Well, you know, I think it's incumbent upon uh, tribal nations to do exactly what this man had just spoke about. And I want to say Chimigwech for him for his comments. Uh, I'm in the same, uh, my my beliefs are the same, that tribal nations need to uh, do a better job of, not do a better job of, we need to take on the responsibility of sharing our histories with others, even other tribal nations, because they're so important. You know, in order for us to move forward, we have to understand what happened and how it happened. And if we're going to train our children to be leaders in their own communities, they have to have those tribal histories. They have to have those family histories. They have to have that identity that spiritual, those spiritual beliefs that carry us forward. And, you know, I'm a big advocate of, um, uh, of, of tribal histories and um, have, have been uh, involved in a lot of research with through our friends and partners of ours. So chimigwech to everyone who was listening. Uh, I really appreciate an opportunity to share a little bit about my grandfather, chimigwech. Well, with that, we have reached the end of our hour. Big thank you to Ben Hinman and Leon Sam Briggs for joining us today and sharing historical insights on Chief Pontiac and the war known as Pontiac's Rebellion. Join us here on Native America Calling again tomorrow as we take a look at current events ranging from the looming government shutdown to the latest news about the spread of COVID-19 infections. Hope you'll tune in then. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at aecf.org. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.